uh, as a president of a college, you know, um, most people would assume the first thing I'll say is that absolutely you need to go get a degree. Uh, the fact is, is that's not true. Um, you do not have to have necessarily a degree. It depends upon what your goal is. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Eliminated Podcast. I have with me Dr. Gregory T. Bush, President and CEO of Miesland's Community College. With more of more than 30 years of executive leadership experience in private sector, public service, nonprofit, and higher education, Dr. Bush is a seasoned and proven leader who can be relied upon for good judgment, open communication, honesty, compassion, and transparency. With acclaimed teaching, scholarship, service, and leadership record, Dr. Bush is a recipient of several honors, including 2015 On the Cutting Edge Award for College-Wide Innovation, 2014 Presidential Recognition Award for Commitment to Excellence in Service in College, 2013 Presidential Recognition Award for Strategic Enrollment Management, and 2012 Presidential Recognition Award for Curriculum Leadership, and many awards, including National Excellence Award for Teaching and Leadership and National from the National Institute for Staff and Organizational Development. At 21 years old, Dr. Bush became one of the youngest business success stories in his chosen profession through hard work, dedication, compassion, creativity, forward thinking, extraordinary leadership skills, and innovation. Dr. Bush, it's such an honor to talk to you. Welcome to Illuminated Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. So you are a wealth, wealth of knowledge on many aspects, whether it is on as an educator or an administrator or an entrepreneur. But I want to start with a topic that is on the top of the national conversation with respect to closing the equity gap in higher education. Because if you think about it, um, I was on po several podcasts and some of the some of the podcast speakers included Dr. Joshua Moon Johnson, who fought, who's fighting for closing the equity gap and supporting the rise of LGBTQI, LGBTQI people. Uh, and there are some um, leaders that are fighting for African-Americans to be in more on diversity and equity. And ultimately, our goal as a society is to get everybody an equal platform, not only in learning, but also in administration as an educator as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, what the problem is and how far we are from solving it? Absolutely. Um, I think you've hit the nail on the head as, as uh, it relates to uh, bringing equality of education to um, a large population. We need to um, bring everybody to an equal um, playing field as far as um, accessibility and student success goes. And, but what we know um, from all of the research that uh, has been presented to us now for, for a number of years is that certain populations of students are marginalized from education. Um, they, you know, they exist from all forms and sectors. It could be based upon race or ethnicity. It could be based upon simply their family income, uh, veteran status. Uh, there's just a number of of factors that what we notice is that these students are not succeeding or completing 
their education to the same degree as um, the mainstream population. And so our primary goal is to look at that gap, um, the gap between the mainstream and uh, these other marginalized students uh, that tend to have more difficulty in either getting accepted and moving into higher education. They have a number of barriers um, and uh, getting them to overcome those barriers. And so we work and we develop uh, institutional departments in order to achieve uh, that goal uh, so that we can work with each student so that they can have number one access to education and then to follow up with those students and follow them from day one through their education to assure that whatever happened in their life that might have been um, some uh, issue that has uh, crept in to uh, prevent them from being successful, that we help them overcome that. So we, we take them from day one and proactively begin to uh, support those students and uh, basically uh, get them through. Um, in doing that, uh, our goal then is to close that equity gap, to close that gap between these mm -hmm. students who have a greater challenge and the students who are um, sort of in the mainstream. So we see that particularly, uh, and you mentioned this among certain populations, but we see this particularly among minority serving institutions. Um, I recently uh, worked with the Gates Foundation uh, on a project with the HBCUs, the historically black colleges and universities. I'm the president of an HSI or a Hispanic serving institution and also an RSI, which is a rural serving institution. And so all of those populations experience a, a pretty steep equity gap. Um, and so what we do is um, build a lot of initiatives and interventions to assure that they can, number one, have access uh, and uh, to make that access equal to the mainstream and then to build in the support systems necessary to make sure that they continue and, um, and persevere throughout their, their, uh, their goals. Yeah, I think you said something interesting. There's a couple of things uh, that I want to hone in on with respect to marginalized students. Um, we certainly have a lot of discussion about diversity, equity, and inclusion on African Americans and also, um, you know, LGBTQI. Like I, I talked about, what are some of the factors that are impacting, you know, income? How does income or rural geography play into somebody's inability to? be part of the mainstream like you described. Can you talk to us about those two variables as well? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there, there are two very strong variables in, in, in both access and success for the students. Uh, number one, the students who come to us uh, who, um, who are lower income students face a great number of challenges. Uh, you know, when trying to come go to school and uh, be able to manage and live on a very limited income is quite challenging. Uh, it could be as simple as a car that needs some car repair done uh, for them to be able to get here, but they simply don't have the money to be able to do it. So we build in emergency uh, funding systems so that our students don't have to miss school, that we can actually uh, give them 
uh, and work with them with emergency funding so that we can address those needs. So if they have a car breakdown, they don't have to miss, miss their classes for that. That's critical. Um, these same people uh, have challenges. The many of them have children. And so they have childcare issues and, and uh, childcare is expensive. And so this is, this is one of the things that we look at as well. What can we do to help them and support in childcare? So, uh, you know, when it comes to the livelihood of individuals who live on an extremely limited income, uh, that has a great bearing on whether or not they can afford to go. Even though here in New Mexico, uh, if, uh, if the students live in New Mexico, we now have free college here. Uh, so it means that it will pay for their uh, tuition uh, and their fees um, with, with a few, few exceptions. But basically, um, you know, they can go to college for free. This, is a, this has been one major step to help uh, eliminate that barrier of access to low-income students. Now, as it relates to the rural students that you mentioned, uh, these, uh, these students also face those similar challenges, number one, uh, because they are rural students and they may be at a greater distance from the college. It means that we have to rely much more on delivery through alternate uh, modalities. For example, uh, whether we uh, hybridize or blend the classes uh, and we offer more courses in a distance learning format, but we just can't wink our eye and believe that that's going to solve their problem either because for many of those students, they live in areas where broadband is simply uh, not available. So we have to look at ways in which we can uh, deliver hotspots into communities uh, so that they can actually have online access. Uh, right. They are otherwise very isolated. And, um, and so this, again, is, a, is an access problem. Um, and so we, uh, we work very hard to try to overcome those issues. Yeah, I mean, that sounds very interesting. A lot of this conversation reminds me of some of the discussions I had with uh, a group called Akal Vidyalaya in out of India. You know, I grew up in India, but um, I came to States in 23, 24 years ago to University of Illinois. And uh, I recently came across this nonprofit called Akal Vidyalaya. Their whole focus is to spread uh, middle education, like middle school and high school education to rural high schools. And I was like, well, what do you need? There's always, obviously, I thought that there were like public schools everywhere. And one of the things that she said was, you know, um, the issues that uh, people in this community struggle with are things that we don't even think about. For example, one of the biggest issues that we had, they had in India was the women um, or the girls, when they hit puberty, they have menstrual cycle. And when they hit menstrual cycle, they can't, they don't have access to, in some of these rural communities, they don't have access to the basic sanitary supplies. So they skip school. So like they, they, she talked about some of those metrics around that. So I was trying to figure out like, you know, you, what you're saying about broadband is exactly the same thing. You can deliver Khan Academy or, or whatever canvas uh, learning material as possible, but if there is no internet, uh, you know, it's a problem in itself. But even if you have the internet, if you don't have a steady environment, if you will, inside their home, where if they're living in a one bedroom house with their parents, uh, mm -hmm. that's a problem too. So how do you overcome that? I mean, I, it's great that New Mexico has free education for all or free community schools. Uh, what are some of the other things that uh, you as a president of Mesa Lens Community College do or other colleges are doing to 
bring education to the learners. Uh, to, to bring it full circle, what Ekal Vidyalaya was doing was they would literally go to these villages and under a tree, they set up a blackboard and teach them. Again, we're talking about elementary and middle school kids. We obviously are not expecting college kids to be able to learn like that, but are there things we can do to take college to the students in some of these rural communities? Sure. Uh, I, I love that question. And I, I want to go back to a point that you brought up because it's very reminiscent to one of the challenges that we face with young mothers who are uh, nursing mothers. And uh, you, you mentioned the, the case of the young women in India not going to school. We run into the same situation where young mothers who are um, college students uh, have, uh, have babies and have and are in a nursing situation. So what we did at the college is we added a mother's room where those mothers have a place to be able to not miss their education, but still have a, a place that they can nurse or, uh, or uh, pump and allow lactation services so that they can continue to school. Uh, otherwise they would be place bound at home uh, and not be able to complete their education. So we build lots of systems into the college uh, where we have taken those different marginalized populations and we've um, disaggregated them as to the types of causes and problems that they may face. For example, first-generation students who's had no one in their family ever go to college and then come to the college and we use a totally different language here. And that's always often very confusing to them. And so we start from the beginning and knowing that and we begin to help them understand that vernacular in a way that, that will uh, not discourage them or confuse them, but actually mm -hmm. help guide them. For I mean, I always like to use the example that when we talk about a course hour, um, to anybody outside of education who didn't know uh, anything about higher education, an hour is 60 minutes. But in a college, an hour is only 50 minutes. So, um, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's one of those things. And when you say that to a student and you say, well, you've got, to, you've got a three hour class. Well, what does that mean to them? And how many hours, how many minutes are they really committing? So working with students who are first generation students, uh, is one of those challenges that we start from the beginning and, and begin to provide that education. Today here at Mesa Lands um, is our um, new student orientation. And so we'll be spending today uh, helping introduce um, a number of the initiatives that uh, we have in place to be able to support them. And we don't wait until they get off track. We start from day one. Uh, we, we identify um, the various characteristics of every student, and then we, um, we, we begin to proactively provide them the information they need to be successful. We don't just wait till they start to have a problem and right. then jump in and try to solve it. So um, again, you mentioned rural students in particular, um, the, the, the distance factor from the institution is a challenge. Uh, many of our rural students also live in, here in New Mexico on uh, large ranches, uh, they, which means they have additional responsibilities to, their, um, to their, their ranches and to the animals that they raise. Um, and so we have to, um, you know, take that into consideration that they have additional responsibilities, just like anybody who's also trying to go to school and work at the same time. So uh, we look at that. We look at uh, what we can do to um, 
get education to them, whether it's through broadband or what we call HyFlex, which is a combination where we may have a class going on at the college, but students who are more remote can come into that class using uh, uh, digital technology and actually be part of the class and engage with the instructors and the other classes, but they're sort of on the wall, you know, uh, uh, being brought in by uh, by like a Zoom type of, sure. of arrangement. And uh, this has opened up opportunities, not only to our rural students and the ones who have the greatest uh, disadvantage in being able to come to school, but it opens up opportunities for students from all over the United States. Mm -hmm. Mesa Lands is a very unique institution. Um, and lots of people will say that about their, their colleges, but we have made it a purpose to uh, actually provide unique programs that you won't find anywhere else. Uh, some programs only exist here at Mesa Lands in the United States. For example, Cowboy Arts, for example. Yeah. Um, that particular I saw program, a Grodia program, yeah, a Grodia Grodia program and, and paleontology as well. So oh yeah, and paleontology. Yeah, we're third in the nation for paleontology. Uh, and, um, and of the three, uh, being at number three, um, number one and number two um, do not engage in actual uh, digs. We Mesa Lands actually sits on an area uh, which uh, contains lots of artifacts. So our paleontology students take place in the digs, then take them back to our natural sciences laboratory, which is connected to our museum, where uh, where we're able to display these. Uh, these findings from the Jurassic mm -hmm. period and beyond. So it's it's a great opportunity for the students to not only learn but to actually get their hands dirty and, sure. and find out what's uh, you know what's going on out there. So yeah, that's amazing. I definitely want to hone in on the programs as well and also Mesa's offerings. But I'll, that's one of one of the things that I um, was trying to struggle with um, or not struggle but just trying to rack my brains around like. You know, we are trying to do a lot of things, especially with respect to what you said about providing mothers access to lactation rooms or providing broadband internet to the students. But one of the issues that I'm seeing with respect to colleges, and it might be some sort of like controversial for somebody who's president of a college, is that, you know, is there still a need for somebody who's trying to do a you know, we'll just take the rodeo as an example or Western arts as an example to get a degree because, you know, conventionally um, every these arts or sciences have been going from generation to generation through actual practical training. In a lot of ways, I think even technology uh, is getting to a point where people are learning by doing how much mm -hmm. of this can be disaggregated like you're describing in your own words to say, Maybe we don't even need a degree. Maybe we need a micro-credential. Maybe we just need a uh, video that they can watch and finish this project and get a credential. Uh, are, are there opportunities like that to help more students get more access to learning? Or is our standard model still to get as many students to college and get them finish a credential? I love that question, and you may be surprised by my answer. Uh, as a president of a college, you know, um, most people would assume the first thing I'll say is that absolutely, you need to go get a degree. Uh, the fact is, is that's not true. 
um, you do not have to have necessarily a degree. It depends upon what your goal is. Uh, you know, if, if your intention is to uh, become a doctor or um, many of the professions that require you to have advanced educations, then yes, a degree is going to be required. But if you um, if you're seeking to get a, a good job uh, and it's not, uh, you know, it may not be necessary for you. It doesn't for you to be able to go out and have to get a degree. So we provide uh, through our workforce development, for example, the opportunity for students to earn, to take just two or three or four classes, for example, and be able to get a micro-credential or be able to get an industry credential that allow them to work in the field and right. make very good money. So, uh, you know, to train people to be electricians and HVAC and in, into the uh, skilled labor force. Uh, these are these are wonderful opportunities, but they don't require a degree. They require right. some type of post-secondary education or training. In today's world, seven out of 10 jobs require some type of post-secondary education or credential. Mm -hmm. You heard me carefully. I didn't say a degree. Uh, so um, one of, uh, you know, just as an example, one of our um, really uh, bustling programs here at Mesa Lands is uh, a CDL credential to drive mm. semi-trucks. Uh, and so this doesn't require a degree. Uh, you can come here to Mesa Lands, you take, you take the CDL program, it, it lasts just a few weeks, you complete that and then uh, you can, and we're a test site for the, for the state so you can get your testing done and, and, have it all, and have it all done. But you don't need to have a degree for that. Um, so there are a number of, of uh, opportunities, and yeah. that's been one of the shifts. If we had had this discussion 25 years ago, um, there would have been a great discussion about everybody needs to go get a bachelor's degree. Um, everybody does not need a bachelor's degree. Everybody yeah. doesn't need an associate's degree or even a certificate. Some people can, um, uh, depending upon what their goal in their life is, uh, can simply uh Take a, take the the training that they need in order to get their um, their post secondary uh, credential, uh, and that that's important. Um, yeah, yeah. But there's uh, but then there are those you know that require just a little bit more, and uh, and so what we do uh, is in many cases students will come in seeking uh, a basic credential um, that may not even they may not even get college credit for it, but it allows them to for example um, uh, you know get their apprenticeship that'll allow them to go out and uh, work in the in their fields and and progress but the cool thing about this is we have it built into ladders so they can come in they can stop out and and go work and then in a few years if they decide they want to move into the management part of that job they can come back to us pick it up we can convert that non-credit to credit and put them on a pathway where they can complete their degrees they can pick a certificate an associate's degree and with our university partners they can go all the way to their doctorate right here on campus so it just it gives them opportunities to start and stop at different points in their career depending upon what their goals and their um their aspirations for advancement are. Awesome, that's fantastic. I like the fact that even though you're president of a college, you're not vested uh, in issuing out, doling out degrees because unfortunately it's not just the fault of the presidents either. You know, law, unfortunately the way the federal funding 
is connected to your colleges or enrollment numbers are connected is forcing presidents or chancellors to think that way. However, I think the formula has to change where our goal should not be to dole out degrees, but dole out credentials or or create more job-ready professionals, especially in community colleges. Um, we've been very excited to work with uh, community colleges in California as part of their California Virtual Campus Initiative that allows students to be able to enroll in any course uh, across the state and uh, finish it online if they wanted to or do it for free. So I think initiatives like that can actually truly benefit uh, rural students. So absolutely. Um, and I'll yeah. simply say um, that is probably the number one uh, <clears throat> conversation taking place in the New Mexico legislature right now uh, as it relates to our funding formulas and um, the, the type of appropriations we receive from the state is to whether is whether or not we uh, are um, uh, we we're, that we're appropriated money for the completion right. of the certificates or those micro credentials. Currently, we are not. Um, right. Currently, we are not funded for supporting those non-credit programs. But there's a, a great deal of of controversy and com and conversation taking place around this. And I believe you know as most states are beginning now to recognize the value of adding those traditional credentials um, that uh, certainly in the next legislative session here in New Mexico, it'll be a, a very um, uh, hot topic to be able to figure out how uh, we yeah. encourage more students to enter into the skilled trades area and, and be able to support the colleges as they do that. So Yeah, I mean, I think even the, when you look at the competency of education or other new models, um, the, the fact that students in these programs don't have access to Pell Grants or other um, traditional instruments to get their education funded. Even if the tuition is free, you still have to pay for boarding. You still have to pay for books. You still have to pay for other things that you don't have access to if you're just getting a signal or a credential. So I think more government can do a better job um, to provide similar instruments, I think uh, will create a better workforce for everybody. Uh, but I know that you're already in the mid midst of all that. And I'm really glad that you are pushing for that, being a champion for change, if you will. Um, I want to talk to you about a couple more things, obviously. Um, definitely about, you gave a lot of insights about Mesa Lens Community College. And when I look at your website, you have some cool programs here, um, like wind energy technology, Western arts, uh, rodeo, and paleontology. Uh, most importantly, I'm interested in like the programs like Western arts and rodeo. Can you talk to our audience a little bit about you know what they what a student can learn in this um, in, in these programs? Are they do would they become a cowboy or something? Yeah. I'm, obviously, that's tongue in cheek, but still, uh, I would I'm still quite interested because I've never heard of a program like that. Yeah, we, uh, we're very proud here at Mesa Lands, particularly of our history within the rodeo programs, but uh, rodeo is one of our athletic um, programs we have, um, and it's uh, nationally sanctioned through the uh, National Intercollegiate uh, Rodeo Association, but we also have a number of other athletic programs that are approved by the NJCAA, uh, men's and women's golf, men's and women's cross country, um, uh, NJCAAE for our esports team, um, and we are growing our athletic programs. Um, you know, 
um, pretty extensively. As well, um, as I mentioned, Mesa Lands is unique. Uh, we, in the fact of, of our institution and the types of programs, we intentionally uh, seek out unique programs that are destination programs. That, so we have people come from all over the world. We have a number of international students to study. For example, you mentioned the Cowboy Arts Program, which is actually silversmithing and jewelry making that's taught by traditional uh, Navajo uh, faculty. So they are actually carrying forward their, uh, their traditions within the Navajo culture and teaching uh, this jewelry making technique. Um, and so, um, you know, I just met a student the other day from Germany who came here um, to, to learn these skills. Um, rodeo in itself is, is a program, but it's, it serves much more as one of our sports. Uh, our paleontology program, as I mentioned, is, uh, is third in the nation. Uh, additionally, we are a center of renewable energy. Uh, which is um, quite interesting because we're one of the few colleges that has its own wind turbine on our campus. So our students um, come from a number of, um, of manufacturers and, uh, and companies who send their students to us to learn how to work and maintain and support uh, wind farms. Mm -hmm. um, the largest wind farm being built in the world is here in New Mexico. Uh, we partner with them and uh, help uh, educate their, their students. Uh, so we have both what's uh, referred to as the nacelle, the, the top piece of the turbine. We have one of those in our, um, in our wind center lab so that they can learn on the ground before they actually transcend uh, you know, the um, uh, 300 feet into the air before they uh, work on the, on the turbine there. But that's just one of our um, uh, one of our renewable energies. We host the North American Wind Research and Training Center here on our campus. Uh, so this is uh, the place to go to learn about wind and renewable energy. Uh, but we're also the center for um, uh, renewable energy uh, as well, uh, meaning that we have nine acres of solar. Uh, so we teach our students how to install and uh, maintain solar fields, as well as solar that might be used in residential situations. Uh, we have five forms of renewable energy that we work on, and we continually look and explore um, how we can research and add more forms of renewable energy uh, to uh, what we're doing here. So that's a, that's a huge uh, piece. Uh, sure. Agricultural program here is is very apropos to uh, living in northeastern New Mexico. Uh, so we have uh, an agricultural program that goes all the way from uh, seed to the table. Uh, so in that process, you know, um, our meat processing program, where uh, we're able to um, train uh, populations of students to uh, actually. Um, uh, go from um, live animals to the food process. Um, so we're, we, we've got those types of programs, not very many places in the country are actually teaching those skills. Um, this is particularly interesting to our indigenous populations who prefer to um, take care of processing their own meat. Um, so we see, we work a lot with that. 
Uh, so it's we do have a, a number of unique programs, but we're not mm. entirely unique. Uh, we also have sure. those, those typical programs that you'll find at most community colleges, uh, you know, nursing and, and our transfer degrees, uh, you know, in, in a wide variety of general ed types of programs such as psychology and philosophy and political science and communication. So those are things that you find just about everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. But it's those unique programs that, that draw our students here. And because we're a residential community college, um, you know, our students uh, come from all over the United States and really all over the world. Uh, and they have a place to live and stay uh, as while they're here. So uh, that's it awesome. Makes our institution um, unique uh, within, its, uh, within itself. So, yeah. That sounds great. I mean, I can't wait to try to try out the Western Arts or uh, Rodeo program. Um, yeah. You know, I've been kind of uh, in this explorative phase myself um, because we were married at one point and uh, we got divorced and uh, I raised my um, son who's now in Georgia Tech, who just uh, moved into Georgia Tech last week. And one of my big focus areas is to learn. And in fact, one of, that's one of the reasons I started the podcast to begin with. And I'm thinking, well, what should I do with this additional five to six hours of extra time I have access to? But, you know, well, I'm glad you did bring up our radio program because it does give, a, give, give <laughs> us some bragging rights on that because uh, <laughs> our radio program is ninth in the nation. Uh, we have not only our performance arena, but we have a number, we have a, also a practice arena as well. So we take rodeo very, very seriously here. And, um, and so it's an incredible sport. A great majority of our students who are uh, student athletes in our rodeo program are also um, have reached the level as professional rodeo, um, uh, professional rodeo uh, folks that are out there doing Wranglers, this on the weekends. Yeah. And uh, so we, we tease them because they go to school all week and then on the weekends they rodeo professionally and make more money than we do uh, rodeoing. <laughs> uh, so um, they, uh, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're a great bunch of, of, of fun people. So our rodeo team generally runs around 35 students and anybody interested in rodeo or has been participating in rodeo, you know, they, it's a, it's a great opportunity to talk to uh, a great leader. Our, uh, our team has gone for, Oh my goodness! Over 20 years, we've made the national finals each year, uh, and uh, this year we have the uh, third in the nation for um, bull riding. And uh, mm -hmm. our team is ninth in the nation altogether. So we we brag about them. Uh, we're very proud of them, and uh, uh, and they're and they're good young people. They're fun people to have around the college. Great. Um, so let's switching topics a little bit, because I think sure. when I look at your profile, it's it's very interesting because you were an entrepreneur and I want to hear about your entrepreneurial journey and then an educator, award winning educator um, and now an administrator. Can you talk to me about like how this uh, scaffolding of working and learning experiences have brought you to where you are right now? Yeah, that's that's always an interesting story, um, and I'll start it by saying it wasn't planned that way. <laughs> so <laughs> it was. It um, never is, I guess. It, no, no, it, it just sort of uh, fell into place, and um, you know, and, and and even to become a president, even after I got into higher education, I um, 
I never really um, sought to be a president. I, I felt that uh, I had done a lot of work and research on what it would take to help make students be successful. Uh, but I realized that in many cases that there were always barriers to me making that happen. And so one day uh, my wife said to me, if you think you're gonna ever make this happen, she says, you're just gonna have to be a president yourself. And I said, I said oh, okay. <laughs> That's your goal and, now. And uh, yeah, so, um, so then, you know, certainly then uh, became a president and have had some great opportunities and, and some great successes there, uh, doing a lot of national work in educational reform and have been since about 2012. Um, so, I've uh, traveled around the country as I take this story uh, chronologically backwards. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, you know, before I was president here, I was in Arizona, worked there to uh, work on educational reform. Um, the reforms that we put in place there helped students uh, graduate on time with lower debt, closing the equity gap for about 400,000 students uh, across Arizona. Prior to that, I was in Ohio, um, did a very similar thing, uh, served as a dean of a couple of colleges there. Um, and then um, before that, I was in my home state uh, where I was born and raised um, in West Virginia, uh, where I worked for West Virginia University at Parkersburg. I was a, um, a associate professor of sociology, psychology, and philosophy in three separate areas. Uh, and, um, and that was where most of my teaching took place. When I transitioned sure. from there and went to Ohio, I moved more into the administrative route. Um, I, prior to that, I, uh, I had additional gr um, graduate work in clinical psychology and, and sociology. So I worked as a therapist and developed, uh, the largest bereavement services program in West Virginia at that point in time. Um, I was, uh, I went to, uh, West Virginia university medical school and I have a degree from there. Um, and so I served as actually a medical examiner for 22 years, uh, before, That's actually, yeah, before actually entering into higher education. So I always, people always ask me, how did that happen? And I always jokingly answer and say, if you stay in school long enough, eventually they make you teach. Um, <laughs> and so uh, that was sort of the, uh, sort of the routine. Um, but at a very young age, at uh, 14 years old, um, and, uh, uh, what's uh, now my wife and I were um, begin sort of dating at that time. So we'd been together forever and ever um, and uh, got married at 18, went on to college, came back, opened our first business um, that uh, ran for about 20 years. It was very successful. We mm -hmm. uh, had a number of spinoff uh, businesses off of that. So I think at one point there was probably about a half a dozen. I've been doing consulting work throughout my life, but we were at that point in time, 21 years old. And um, it was, uh, it was an interesting journey. So yeah, um, you know, being a 21 year old CEO, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and people actually trusting a 21 year old CEO, which yeah. I, to this day baffles me as I look back. Um, but yeah, I did that. And then uh, the opportunity came, as I said, um, to, to um, continue to diversify. And I just sort of slipped into a situation where I could start teaching and um, 
And so I just sort of evolved from that, um, sold our businesses and uh, went into higher education, uh, took higher education then um, for the next uh, ever since. So I've been in higher ed now for mm, uh, probably almost 25 years or so. And um, so, yeah, so it was, uh, it was an interesting and a fun journey. I've had a lot of experience in a lot of different areas and, and none of it was planned. <laughs> At least none <laughs> of it was planned in, in the sequence in which it happened or that, that would ever, um, would ever come to that. So, but. Uh, sure. Well, that's great. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned and it humbles me to see how you have uh, evolved your journey as well. I think I'll bore you with this detail because a lot of times uh, my son is more on the, you know, he has this idea that life is a structure and you build in some one scaffold to another. And that's kind of the traditional model that people make you believe in. As I'm saying, if you do A and then B and then C and then D, and I was like, you know, I kind of like use the same example as you saying, well, I, I wanted to become a doctor. I got into bachelor of pharmacy and then came to us to do my master's in medicinal chemistry. And while I was doing that, I got into computational chemistry and then now you know, got into IT, got a job in University of Illinois implementing student race systems, and that became my job. So the point is, you know, life is, at least for me, a series of accidents uh, that we we yeah. move into mm -hmm. one step to another. Well, I will, I will say yeah. this about it, that, um, yeah, it wasn't really planned, but uh, I, I certainly, um, um, I believe that very much of the power that's in you. Um, for example, uh, when I was in high school, I mean, I had I had good grades um, and I did well, but I was told that I was not college material um, because my parents were divorced. I came from a broken home, and um, they believed that uh, they said. I needed to know my place in life, that people could not do this. This is why I do the work I do today, because I'm working with students who were like me. So I right. was told that I would never amount to more than an encyclopedia salesman uh, and that uh, that college wasn't for me. Um, you need to figure out something else to do with your life. I wasn't willing to accept that as an answer. And um, so I went to the local community college and asked, I said, you know, can I go to college? Cause they kept telling me I couldn't. And yeah. um, my, uh, the local community college, the young lady I was talking to there looked at me and she smiled from ear to ear. And she said, absolutely, you can go to college. And yeah. you know, that, that woman changed my life for the rest of my life. I went on to go to college. I graduated from from Xavier University of uh, Summa Cum Laude, first in my class. I went on to medical school. I did all these other things. And today I'm a president of a college, uh, a, a person who was told they weren't college material. So yeah. um, I, I find this important. And, and I think it's probably, uh, well, I will say it is the driving force of what makes me do what I do. Uh, because too many people in our society are told, all the reasons why they can't do something, but no, few people are given the encouragement and called upon to pull on that inner strength in themselves to make themselves successful, and uh, and that's really at the um, sort of at the central point of what I do. What I do. Uh, we started this conversation talking about marginalized students. I was one, mm -hmm. and right. so the whole point is now. Uh, sort of bringing that full circle back around so that we can 
actually help and, and see those students successful. Um, you know, I've had a wonderful opportunity. I've taught in 14 countries and, I've, you know, I've had a tremendous opportunity in my life. Um, and if I had listened to naysayers along the way, um, the, um, this would not have been the situation. So that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes without saying, um, all hero stories are stories of self-overcoming. Um, you know, you'll never hear about a story of a hero that has heard some naysayers and that, you know, maybe that is what it is. Ultimately, you know, your hero's journey is absolutely a self-fueled one. And it's really incredibly uh, humbling to hear how you have overcome your home situation and everything else. And I think that's kind of the summary of how I portray to my kids as well, saying, you know, it's a series of chances, but you still have to always, every step of the way, not think about what you're going to lose when you leave medicinal chemistry or whatever, but what you're going to gain if you take this path and focus on that growth path rather than keep worrying about what did not happen or could have happened. So as we conclude this discussion, I want to kind of bring it all together and say, what are the possibilities for higher education in the next five, 10 years, or maybe 20 years? Um, where do you see higher education moving forward? We talked a little bit about micro-credentials. We talked about self-paced learning. What are some of the big things that we can do as entrepreneurs, administrators, or educators to move higher education forward? Certainly. Um, you know, when we talk about the old days uh, and the way higher education uh, functioned, uh, you want to think, oh, you must be talking 50 years ago. Um, but now when we talk about the old days of the way uh, higher education was, we're talking about anything prior to 2019 uh, because COVID changed the way that education is delivered. Yep. And it's going to cha it change. It changes uh, our employees. It changes uh, the expectations of our students. It's changed the entire culture. Uh, into a way that we have to look at education in a much different way. So as we look forward, we're not going to be looking at colleges operating the way they were prior to COVID. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, multiple modalities in which we, uh, which we reach our students and deliver our programs. We have to look at the infrastructure that we have in place to be able to sustain that. We have to be looking at how we can um, uh, hone in on those micro-credentials that we've mentioned or skills trades areas uh, and be able to deliver those and recognize that those are as critically important as those other programs, which are also critically important if you have to have a degree. Um, yeah. it's, I always say it's sort of ironic, you know, when we talk about the fact that we're very quick to fund a degree or push a degree, but during COVID, if you remember what we called essential workers, were mm -hmm. actually people who didn't necessarily have to have a degree. Uh, That's they right. were the people who fixed your cars and they were the people who, um, you know, were taking care of you in the hospitals um, that had- And the Amazon drivers. Certificates, uh, certified nursing assistants, all those kinds of people. And the drivers, you're right. So, uh, you know, so I think it's now become more aware that we have to focus on what is, 
what what's the what are the community needs and what are the goals of the student and begin to really think about what do we need to do to make those students successful in achieving that and making a well, a much more well-rounded society um, that's that's going to happen there'll always be needs for people with degrees uh, there's people who uh, you know i'm not i'm not an anti-degree person at all obviously i have a collection of my own uh, but I, but we need to remember that in the future of education, it's going to be just as critical for us to deliver programs and training um, in addition to our degrees. And mm -hmm. I, I believe as we look five years down the road, 10 years down the road, that's going to become more and more important uh, and that we begin to reach those students uh, sooner and sooner in their careers. That's fantastic. Dr. Bush, I can imagine us talking for hours together. However, I do realize that your time is limited. I cannot be more grateful for your time, and I really appreciate all the thoughts you shared with us. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Listeners, we'll post the show notes with the way to connect with Dr. Bush, um, but through his Instagram account and other social media accounts. Thank you for tuning in. Everything is a service. Whether it's finding ways to help students reach their goals within higher education, sharing medical records to patients quickly and securely, informing residential customers of an impending outage, or communicating with remote satellites thousands of miles apart. All of it requires data, integration, and communication. At Intuin, we provide services that make all of these possibilities realities. And we make it faster, simpler, secure, and easier. Because we believe everything is a service, and bringing everything together is how we can help you innovate and change the world.